Hello and welcome to our podcast, Spilling Tea with the G's. I'm your host, Nick Galrakis. I am joined by my brother, Steve Galrakis. We are delighted to be teaming up for what we expect to be a fun and insightful podcast season filled with people in the adolescent and young adult cancer community, or better known by the acronym AYA. The purpose of this season is to look at services and resources that might be forgotten by the AYA cancer community so people can learn more about what is out there that can help them live their life how they want to. Before I introduce the session's interviewee, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we could not make this podcast possible without the amazing supporters from the following organizations, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, Servier, and Walgreens. These organizations support our mission at the Stephen G. Cancer Foundation and Elephants and Tea to make sure no AYA faces cancer alone, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, or location. If you know someone at these organizations, please thank them for all that they do for our community. Now, today's guest is Dr. Jennifer, Jennifer Geisel, who is a psychologist and an AYA survivor herself. Jen is at University Hospitals here in Cleveland, Ohio, where we are based and where Steve has been treated for years. And Steve and Jen have a personal and, of course, a professional relationship, but have just gotten to know each other over the years. And we think it's so important to have Jen on to talk about the importance of a psychologist. And we actually get into it, not just from a patient survivor standpoint, but from a caregiver and family standpoint, being a sibling of someone that has lived through several cancers, you, we tend to forget that we need some help too every now and then when it comes to mental health and things of that nature. So we definitely dive in from the patient survivor standpoint, but also the caregiver, sibling, family member standpoint as well. It's a good one. Jen is a awesome sport her dog might join us as well too. So fair warning there, but it's all in fun. So sit back, relax, plug those headphones in if you have to and enjoy this episode. All righty. So Jen, thanks again for joining us. We're super excited to have you on with Splink Tea with the G's and Let's get right to it. The first question we have for you is, is, I think, the easiest one for most people. But tell us a little about yourself. Obviously, Steve and I know you pretty well. Um, yeah. But for, for those that are listening that have no idea who Jennifer Geisel is, I think it'd be great to kind of lay the foundation there. Sure. So my name is Jen, and I am a clinical psychologist. And I work at University Hospitals, Angie Fowler Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Institute. I've been with UH since 2013, and I've been in oncology since 2016. Gotcha. And that's in Cleveland, Ohio, for those that are, I guess, don't recognize where we're all from. And that's uh, where Steve's been treated, too, as well for his. So our families, we know that hospital like the back of our hand, unfortunately. I know Jen really well from that standpoint. And uh, icebreaker to the listeners out there, at one point in time, Jennifer also used to be my psychologist. And so we uh, we know each other very well. <laughs> We do. <laughs> nice. So, Jen, why become a psychologist in oncology or a clinical psychologist? Um, well, I was on the path to become a psychologist for a long time now. I, I was in school. I've been in school forever. <laughs> but I was diagnosed with cancer as a young adult, and that kind of changed my entire path. I was doing my internship at UH in just health psychology. Um, and then obviously after my experience, it kind of drove me into oncology. 
And Jen, if if, okay. if you don't mind, would you uh, could you elaborate on your, your uh, diagnosis a little bit, if you're okay with that? Sure. So, in 2014, I was pregnant with my second child, and I, I was having all kinds of complications that I kept telling my doctors about, but they were attributing it to cancer. I mean, sorry, not to cancer. They're attributing it to pregnancy. <laughs> it would have been better if they thought of cancer, but you know, with young adults, they don't automatically assume that. So they pick everything else, right? So they never thought of cancer. And so unfortunately, because it was never looked at, it progressed. And when I was about seven months pregnant, I got really sick and I had to be placed in the ICU. They delivered my son. And at that point, it was stage four laryngeal cancer. So I had a huge tumor in my throat that blocked off my airway. And I had chemo, radiation, surgery. And now it's been about seven years. So a psychologist that really, truly understands the world that you live in and work in. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wasn't sure if that was going to be a positive or a negative, um, but it turns out to be really positive, I think. That's, I think that's great from the standpoint of the positive side of things, not that you had cancer, <laughs> of course. Um, it's, it's amazing some of the words, how we say certain things, right? And when they right. come out, I, I am going to jump on ahead uh, of Steve on one of the questions here, just because you kind of just touched on that a little bit of how you know, becoming a clinical psychologist in oncology, you have your own personal experiences. So you're able to relate to your patients and to those in the community, but are there times that some of these conversations that you have, and obviously we don't need specific examples, but I mean, unless you want to give any specific examples to it as much as you can, but any times that the things hit a little too close to home based on your own experience uh, personally versus your profession. I absolutely, but I don't know, again, I don't feel like it's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I mean, Steve has probably witnessed some of it, Uh, you know, the first time that we went to cancer, just being around that many people that had similar experiences, which is, it was overwhelming. But I think that it's worked, I don't know, to my benefit that I can have compassion and empathy and true understanding of some of their experiences. Do I cry? Yes. But I have my my support team, you know? Mm-hmm. Does You're that make human. sense? Yeah, absolutely. You're human, right? I, yeah. I, I think it would be a concern if you never cried based on what you do and what you've been through. Well, and I don't want to lose that human side of me just to be able to do my job. Right. So I value that. Well, and it's it's so important because it's the one thing I always tell cancer patients, and it's hard sometimes, even even talking to to the medical teams, is that to you, and I say you, the medical field, people in the medical field, it's your daily job. But to a cancer patient, that appointment, that that conversation is the most important thing in the entire world. And so the fact that And I'm sure it's difficult, you know, to at times to understand that as a psychologist that, you know, that, yes, this is your job that you're doing, but also that how important each interaction can be and what it means. Yep. 
Well, that can just, I think the nature of diagnosis, treatment, and beyond, it's a different relationship, I think, with the families. You get to know, I mean, look, you guys, you get to know the siblings, the parents, and you see them through so much. How do you not, how do you not become attached on some level? Like a healthy attachment. But still, you're—I mean—you become like family. I mean, yeah, you're—you're you're, you're going through. You're essentially going through this extremely dark time with that family. It's you're—you're mm-hmm. you're a part of it. Yeah. Uh, so that you know, as someone who has personally spent many, 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 many years in therapy, many of them with you, um, <laughs> why, you know, why? You know, I consider and say why it's important for someone to go to a therapist and go to a psychologist and and actually receive proper mental health care. Why do you think it's important or know it's important, you know, for survivors, patients, hell, even caregivers, you know, to seek out and receive mental health care? Because I think that it's such a part of the diagnosis. You know, having a diagnosis of cancer disrupts so many things in a young adult's life. That I feel like for so many reasons, having a professional to help you work through the emotional aspect of that is needed. I mean, I think it's, I'm so fortunate to be part of UH and the Angie Fowler Institute because there it's regarded as part of your care. It's not in in addition to, it's just part of, because it's that important. You know, it's it's an emotional battle as much as, if not more than physical, I think. And I, I, I mean, I would I would agree with you on that 100 percent as, you know, someone who has been through a variety of treatments and from chemotherapies to radiation to multiple surgeries. Yeah, all those things suck and they're terrible, but usually those things are momentary, at least. In my experience, obviously, everyone's experience is different. Yeah. Uh, for me, the biggest struggle was always the the mental side of things. You know, the the post cancer, especially you know, trying to mm-hmm. fit back into the world that you don't feel like you fit into, and trying to find understanding within your friends and your family where they can't understand. So it's it's so important to be able to sit down with someone, obviously having you as a psychologist was incredible because you understood exactly what I was going through, but just in general, being able to have that proper help. Yep. You know, and the validation and the normalization of the emotions. I mean, I I think for me, it's kind of embarrassing to admit because I'm a psychologist, (laughs) but when I went through it, I did not expect the emotional toll that it took. Even though I'm a psychologist, and this is what I've learned in books, when it happened to me, I wasn't ready. Hmm. So I think it's nice to, now that we've come a lot further, that we that we can walk alongside our patients to normalize mm-hmm. the depression, the anxiety, the trauma. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm going to take a little uh, tangent here, you know, so... Is this a new, something new that we do for cancer patients now? I mean, has psychology always been there as a resource or is it something that has more recently become, come to the forefront and understanding of how important the psychosocial aspects is? Because we know that 
those things obviously increase quality of life. So I, I guess, is it a recent development that we now focus more on that? I mean, I think it depends on what world we're talking about, pediatric or adult. That's all right. We, we all got dogs. It's good. <laughs> Psychology has always been there. Actually, in oncology, we have been in oncology the longest. But in my experience, treated at Sidemen, it wasn't presented as an option to me when I was struggling. So I think it depends on the institution and whether you're treated in pediatric or adult. Once I was referred to Angie Fowler, it was there. Someone just wants to be a part of the interview. <laughs> That's my dog. I'm sorry. It's all good. So, so Jen, that actually, uh, you know, it kind of leads into something else I was thinking about, you know, because we keep talking about how you work at this wonderful institution that's Simon Cancer Center, Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, University Hospitals in Cleveland here. And it is, it's one of the leading uh, facilities in the country, if not the world for cancer treatment. But as we've, as you've already alluded to, not everybody has that access to that type of facility. And so for someone who is seeking mental help, who might not be at that kind of facility, you know, are there resources out there? Is there, is there, what can they do to help facilitate that search and that path to finding a psychologist, a psychiatrist that fits their needs? Well, and you guys can elaborate on this, but I think getting involved with some of your local, national or regional organizations that have networked, I think would be a good start. You know, Stupid Cancer, Elephants and Tea, different places like that that have a relationship with providers in different areas would be a good start. Awesome. Uh, That's what I would say. Yeah. And then, you know, the other question I have for you is as, as someone who has been a patient and also is a psychologist, you know, sometimes finding a good psychologist, a good therapist is an absolute, not crapshoot, but it's very difficult, especially depending on your personality and what you want and how you talk about things. I consider and say, you know, it, it, it takes time to find the right person sometimes, you know, but I guess, do you have any advice for that specifically on what patients should ask of their doctors or what should they, how should people approach therapy to get the most out of it? That's a loaded question. And, and I agree with you that it can be a crapshoot, whether that's the, the right thing for me to say or not. In my own experience, looking for a therapist to manage what I was going through with treatment was, I went through like four <laughs> because I felt like they just didn't get it. So, I, and I never asked, and looking back, hindsight, I would have asked, have you worked with other young adult oncology patients? Like, what's your experience with that? What's your approach to treatment? You know, I, I, I think that it's important to have the relationship and the connection, but the therapist has to have some experience mm -hmm. with what you're looking for. So I would always ask. Yeah, not be afraid to speak up, right? No, never. Mm -hmm. No, because it, it has to be a good fit or it's not going to work. Yeah. So I'm going to circle. You know, I, oh, sorry. I was going to say no. the other thing is, I, I think like personal referrals, talking to other people, well, you know, who have you worked with? I Things like really, that would be helpful. 
I think that's really, really great advice. Cause obviously if, if you know how you know, your friends or someone, you know, how, how they interact with people, understanding their yeah. interaction with the doctor could be really helpful. And Nick, you were going to add something. Yeah. I, I was just going to circle back on something that actually the way that Steve phrased one of the questions mm-hmm. of we, we obviously focused a lot of the questions today on the patients and the survivors, but it hit me mm-hmm. as Steve was talking about mentioning caregivers or even siblings in my, as myself, do you see caregivers and siblings as well? Personally, not for individual, but for family, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm only one person. So right, I, right. <laughs> I think that it's, it's, it is a resource that is needed. Absolutely. It's really hard as a psychologist to see the patient individually and then also their family individually. That's a conflict. But if you see them in the setting of family therapy, that's a different dynamic. But we do have some resources that we routinely give to families of community partnerships that can address that. But it's it's so we need more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I that it's one I, I I forget about the conflict, right? Obviously, you don't ever want to be put yeah. yourself in, in a position to be in between family members, unless it's a like you said, it's a family setting, like right? Family session. Um, yep. The because there's a couple of things that that came to mind, uh, and you kind of talked about a little bit is two things. One, the whole idea of you don't realize what's happening to you during treatment, either as the patient or as the family member, right? Until years after the fact. We we talk about that all the time with a lot of guys that for whatever reason, dudes compared to, the, the, to ladies, they don't want anything to do with the ancillary support groups like elephants and like stupid cancer mm-hmm. until years later, when they realize, man, something's going on. I don't know what it is. The anxiety side of things. Right. And that's what it is, is the fact that they don't necessarily recognize of what they're going through, but it kind of hit me a little bit as a sibling and, and knowing a lot of families as well as our own family that you don't necessarily realize the toll that was put on myself or other family members too. Right. At the time. Well, and I think that part of that is protective. Right. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. when that happens, you're in, you're in survival. Right. You need to get through your surgeries, your treatment, you know, whatever that is as a unit, you're in crisis mode. Right. So you're just getting through the day. It's when treatment ends and your visits start to spread out, your surveillance starts to spread out that you can look back and say, what the, what the hell just happened? Yeah. Right. And and then I think it hits. And I think that's primarily protective. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, one from the patient side, as you said, surviving is number one, clearly. Yep. But then number two, for the family, you you want to be you want to show as you don't want to come off as you are emotional, right? Even though you are internally, you want to be the rock or the pillar or whatever the case, whatever it is, right? Right. And I think it's just interesting, you know, Steve and I and our other brother, Phil, we actually sat down once and did talk about this. We did record some of it. We haven't released it. Um, But it was the first time the three of us actually talked about Steve having cancer. And it was amazing just, just reflecting on it, the emotions that came out and how different the emotions were from all three of us. 
and how yeah. each each of our stories of what we remember were completely different too. That is interesting. Yeah, so it, you know, it's just fascinating to me as just a, a nerd at times from the standpoint of what did happen to all of us that yep. you don't realize it till far down the road. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's so, it affects so many different areas mm-hmm. again. And if you allow yourself to absorb all that, how do you get to treatment every day or through your hospitalizations? I, again, I feel like for most patients, it's survival mm-hmm. protective and families too, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. Organizing for action. Yes. Yeah. Organizing for action. I like that. I have not heard that before. I just made that up. Did you? You should. You should. <laughs> you should. You should, you should trademark that, or maybe someone else did. Probably. So, and I guess we didn't tell you this, Jen, but I I like to throw curveballs every so often. He he um, he loves to throw curveballs. Okay. Anyway, before Steve throws a curveball, do you have any juicy stories that you can share of Steve, or is that uh, too much of a doctor-patient conflict here? The, the book is open. Wow, well, that's care. a major doctor-patient conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I think that 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 kind of alludes that's to it, right there. Big. I get to keep all of those within my little self. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, what did you think of our family when you first met us all? How about that? I'm really putting you on the spot there. I mean, I love you guys. And that's it. I just, again, these families become like your family. Sure. Even if it's dysfunctional, whatever it is, you, I, I don't know. How Somebody just call this dysfunctional. Call How could, yeah. No, I didn't call you dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, right? Angie is phenomenal. I, I mean, in all of your, you see you guys probably at your worst, right? Like all of these families. And how do you not, how do you not love Angie? Right. How do you not love your dad? I don't know. I just honestly love your family. Right. You become like our family. So it's funny, you know, know. Nick tried to, you know, go in a different direction before I had a chance to ask my curveball and he kind of kept it right where I was going to, you know, go after. I apologize, Jen. (laughs) So no, you know, we're we're talking, we're talking about family and. And this story started off, you know, with you talking about being diagnosed with cancer with your son while you were pregnant with him. Yes. And so I guess as a mother, as a survivor, as a psychologist, you know, yeah, we have you on here to be a psychologist and, and, and to talk about the importance of therapy. But as you said earlier, you're a human. And so I guess as the human, not Dr. Geisel, which I don't think I've ever called you Dr. Geisel. I think you've always been Jen to me. Yeah, or, uh, never have. Um, <laughs> uh, but how does this affect you as a mother, as a human, you know, go, you know, being a psychologist and being a cancer survivor. And if this is, you know, something you don't want to talk about, you know, that's, that's okay. But at the same time, I think it'd be really wonderful for our listeners to be able to hear a little bit more, even about that human side of you, the regular side. I don't know if that's even the right term, but the regular, <laughs> there's nothing regular about you. <laughs> You know, I think that it affects me like it would affect most people. My son, so it's interesting, I guess, that we're talking about this now. My son just turned seven. So he was obviously born when I was diagnosed. And he is just now 
asking all kinds of questions. Am I going to get cancer? Are you going to die of cancer? How did you get cancer? Like for the past week and a half, every day, 20 questions at 6 a.m. about cancer. And I don't have all the answers. So I had to reach out to our child life specialist to come in and, and help because I, I didn't know how to answer it for him. Because with him, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. So I think for me, it's really been trying to separate those roles has been one of the hardest things. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always different with your kid. You know, your profession just totally yeah. sometimes just you forget, right? At times of what to even say. And even though yeah. you in front of a patient, you'd be like Johnny on the spot, like boom, 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 right? Right. I'm too close. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think in the setting when I when I leave there, I'm just a mom, mm-hmm. you know. And um I can't take that with me. Like pieces of being a psychologist with me. So I think it affects me like it would affect anybody that wasn't a psychologist. If that answers your question. It, it does. And and I and I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's important for, you know, again, we're we're dealing with young adults here, you know, and adolescents. Yeah. And a lot of them are mothers, you know, and I think it you know, it's, it's important for them to hear that even as someone you who is a psychologist doesn't have the answers for their children. And, and even you still need to reach out to the child life specialist and that's what they're yeah. there for, you know, and I think, um, you know, I'm not sure as a can as someone who doesn't have any children, you know, even though I've had cancer as an adult, you know, I think it's important that people understand that they probably can talk to their doctor about reaching out to a child life specialist at, the, at their hospital. Yeah you know, to have those, to help have those conversations with their children, because I can only imagine that that is, you know, especially, especially if they're old enough to understand when you're diagnosed or at least younger, you know, not an infant, but yeah. even, you know, I, I, even now I can't imagine that that's an easy conversation to have. No. And he really is trying to make sense of it. You know, he sees pictures of him when he was born versus his sister, completely different. And so he, uh, he's probably going to be like me, but he's very like internalizing, always thinking in his head, trying to make sense, put things together. So, and he deserves an explanation or an understanding. So I encourage communication. That's, that's really wonderful. From someone else. <laughs> no, but that's, but you're, you're, you're aware of, you know, and, it's as any human, it's good to be aware of your shortcomings and not only shortcomings in a bad way, but just, I mean, again, as I always tell any cancer patient, I'm sure you do as well. You've never been through this before. You don't know how to talk to your child about what it's like to have had no. cancer and how it affected his life. You know, no, that's why we have without, specialists. Not without becoming so emotional that it would probably frighten him. Just being honest. So, yeah. you know, we're so lucky. We have Stephanie and Lisa, you know, with us that are just that I can't imagine better people to come in and do that. And so. Stephanie and Lisa are the child life specialists, correct? Yes, they are. Yep. Yeah. Stephanie's going to come in and do her magic. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. 
Yeah. So that's another important part, right, of the whole just treatment process, really. Oh, yes. All of us, we work together. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't work independently of one another. You know, we work together as a team. It yeah. takes a village. That's Absolutely. a cliche, but it's so true. It's so true. We say it takes a herd uh, with our elephants. Yeah. Let's name, right? But it, it's so true. And just going back to one of your first points of the fact that where you work at university hospitals, it's part of the whole treatment process, right? You recognize yep. the, the, the institution, the organization recognize that this needs to be a part of the process, not as like an ancillary, you know, go when you want to go. Right. And I think we just right. hear a, a lot of the time, we kind of, I think we alluded to this a little bit, but we hear a lot of the time from folks that uh, we help support that their hospitals don't have that still as, you know, part of the the process and they have to go on their own to do that. So yeah. we definitely know how fortunate it is that you all one exist and two, the fact that you recognize as an organization, as one entity that what, not just a clinical psychologist, but the social child life specialist and everyone else that's part of that team. It's that's huge. Mm-hmm. That's huge. It's huge. Yeah, thanks to Amelia Buffa, you know, she would not rest until that happened. Good old Amelia. And and so everybody needs an Amelia, mm-hmm. and I think. For, for those of you out there, if, if you are at a hospital that has a... Uh, I, she is what, what is her title now? Because I, I describe her as, a, as an adolescent young adult cancer nurse navigator, even though that is such a... But essentially, if you have someone at your hospital that can help you navigate the system of mental health care and your treatments, you really need to find them and, you know, search yeah. them out if possible. Because I, as as Jen has uh, talked about now a few times here, Amelia was my, again, nurse navigator, even though, again, she has specialties in mental health care as well. It was such a relief to be able to call her and talk to her when I needed yeah. things. She was almost like a social worker to an extent. You know, she's a, bit, a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, officially, is, is, isn't, isn't Amelia a nurse practitioner with a doctorate now? Technically, she is a nurse. She is a psychiatric NP. There we go. But again, I, I, when you said, what is her title? <laughs> I, don't need, I don't think there's one that encompasses that all of it. Fit. But, I, you know, navigator is that's a good point, because what they do is they, they link you with services in the area that they're aware of. So even if you don't have a psychologist and you have a navigator, they might be able to help. And, you know, and, and, and this term might be different at all different hospitals, you know, it might not be a navigator. Uh, You also might have social workers at your hospital. And if you haven't reached out to your social worker and you, and you are in treatment or even post-treatment, I do recommend that you reach out to, to a social worker at your hospital, because from my personal experience, they, especially on the adult side, they help coordinate the doctors who, to be quite frank, if you if you're an adult side patient, which most likely you are, uh, it's like herding cats. So a social worker can help with that whole aspect, which leads to mental health. I mean, the if you have less stress when it comes to getting your appointments taken care of and finding out what's going on, it's definitely going to decrease your overall stress. So I highly recommend to anybody out there listening that you get in contact with your social worker at your hospital if you haven't already. I, honestly, I think I, I see patients that choose, it's obviously a choice and everybody's different, but patients do better when they just say yes to the services that are offered, whatever is offered. 
is there for a reason. You know, so when you're comfortable, just say yes. Well said. So on that note, Jen, you know, I kind of, I think we already threw a couple of little tidbits of advice, but I guess if there was one thing that people should remember to take away, you know, what, what would that advice be? Well, I, I mean, I think there's just one that's hard. I, I mean, I think one of the tidbits is that it's okay to not be okay. Hmm. And it's okay to ask for help. We all need help. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a clinically trained licensed psychologist and I needed help and there was no shame. So, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Yes. You know, and no and, stigma, no shame. Mm-hmm. And to add to your, your, your one piece of advice, Jen, I'm just going to reiterate all the things that we kind of talked about here today, just so our listeners, you know, can hopefully remember is if you have a social worker, reach out to your social worker. If you're not, getting mental health care, you should probably reach out and find someone. It's not going to be an easy process necessarily. You might have to go through a few doctors to find the one that's right for you. And as Jen put it and put it so well, it's okay to not be okay. Jen, thank you very much for being with us today. You've been wonderful. It's been great. Thank you. And thank you for all that you do. Oh, of course. My pleasure. You are wonderful, Jen. Thank you so much for every for all the help you've given me, the family, and all of the patients that you get to see. I'm sure you genuinely enrich their lives and increase the quality of it. Mm-mm. As they do mine, for sure. Thank you. Our thanks to Dr. Jennifer Geisel for joining us for this episode. It is always great to interview someone that we know at more on a personal level, but as you could tell, she is phenomenal in working with patient survivors and of course, family members as well. So again, thank you, Dr. Jennifer Geisel for joining us on this episode. Our next episode will feature our friend Shiv Rao, the founder and CEO of Abridge. And Abridge has a phenomenal app for recording the appointments for going to see doctors, whether it's oncologists, primary care physicians, et cetera. So we'll dive into that with Shiv. Uh, He's got an awesome backstory of of why he started a bridge and has a clear emotional tie to making sure patients are heard and they get the information and resources they want to. So you're not going to want to miss this episode. Don't forget folks to like, share, subscribe to our podcast as all this helps us grow our reach so more people can feel less alone in facing cancer. Again, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we could not make this podcast possible without the amazing supporters from the following organizations, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, Servier, and Walgreens. These organizations support our mission at the Stephen G. Cancer Foundation and Elephants in Tea to make sure no AYA faces cancer alone, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, or location. If you know someone at these organizations, please thank them for all they do for our community. Have a great day, all. Toodles.